Now, the next two parables taken together as a pair tell us what it is that God himself is going to gain through his intermediate uh, mystery kingdom. You know, what's going to be the product of his work of sowing and laboring during this mystery kingdom? Well, he will gain a hidden treasure and he will also gain a pearl of great price. So let's look now at the parable of the hidden treasure. And for this, we find it in verse 44. I have to skip down to verse 44. Because in the in-between there, we had the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and tares. So look at Matthew 13, 44, where the Lord says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man hath found, he hideth. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now, again, the Lord took something common to life in first century Israel to teach kingdom truths. He took a situation that would be very familiar to his hearers. And at this time, remember that his hearers consist only of his disciples. The other parables have been spoken to the multitude, but now he sent the multitude away and he gives the interpretation of all seven parables, but he only also speaks the last three parables to his disciples. So remember this, the multitude didn't even hear these last three parables, much less the parable of the householder, which is the the eighth parable. All right, so they didn't even hear this parable. So they couldn't even scratch their heads and say, I wonder what that was all about. Every once in a while, the Jewish people would hear about someone who found a treasure. Have you ever searched for a treasure? I don't know why I was obsessed when I was a child, searching in our backyard for a tre- hidden treasure. And one day I found, um, I guess it was a gourd, and I thought it was a golden egg. And I kept that thing forever, and I didn't want to cut into it because I knew I'd be disappointed, I guess. But I was always, I guess my dad used to tell us stories about, you know, he loved to sit at the dinner table and tell stories. He was a great storyteller. Oh, he could tell stories that just would have you trembling and crying and laughing. He was a wonderful storyteller. We'd sit there sometimes two hours while my dad would tell stories, and we were just infatuated. I could tell you one that was hilarious because something actually happened, but I, can't, I don't have a run out of time. But he used to tell us, I think, stories about hidden treasures and how there was a, gold, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So I think I was always... I remember one time I set off, I was going to find the end of that rainbow. <laughs> Didn't get too far before I realized, ooh, I'll never get there. But anyway, the Jews would would periodically hear about someone who found a treasure because the practice of hiding one's valuables in the earth back in ancient days in Israel was a very common practice. We have to remember they didn't have any banks, and they didn't have any um, security uh, deposit boxes back in those days. So most people hid their treasures and their jewels in some secret spot, usually underground. And they'd memorize where the spot was. You know, they'd they'd go out and they'd dig up a big hole, especially people in Israel. Remember, because Israel was always being run over by some enemy. If the Syrians were fighting the Egyptians or the... um, when the, they were actually taken captive by the Assyrians and then they were later taken captive by the Babylonians. The Jews, when they knew the enemy was marching their way, they would run out 
maybe by that old sycamore tree and they would bury their treasure or they, they would remember where they buried it. But if the person who buried the treasure died before they returned to the land or before they could you know, tell their children or their grandchildren where that treasure was buried, it, w- it could remain there for many years, maybe even centuries. And this did happen. Every now and then, someone would be plowing up a piece of land, or, you know, and he'd strike one of these treasures. It was something common to the Jewish people. Now, in this parable, one who, not, not real common, but it, it did happen on occasion, all right? The one who found the treasure in this parable was not the owner of the field in which he found the treasure. But uh, he may have been hired by the owner of the field to work for him. Maybe he was out there plowing and he found the treasure. Or I don't know. I, you know, I don't know who the man was, but he was not the owner of the field. He might have just been passing by and saw something sticking out of the earth, for all we know. But, but whatever the, the, the bottom line is, that he did discover a valuable treasure. And he was so joyous over discovering this treasure, as anybody would be, right, that what did he do? He rehid it. And then he went and he sold all that he had, everything he had, so that he could come back and purchase the field from the owner so that the treasure would belong to him. Now, as you can imagine, some people have said, ooh, Jesus is teaching something unethical here in this story. They say that the man who found the treasure should have told the owner of the field about the treasure since it belonged to the owner. Have any of you ever found a $100 bill in the middle of Walmart? Would you hold up the $100 bill and say, excuse me, did you lose this? Excuse me, did you lose it? How many people would say, oh, yes, thank you? Probably most. <laughs> Very few not, not uh, dishonest people in this world. Now, there would probably be a few Christians, right? You and I would say, no, that's not mine. But the rest would say yes. So this, you know, this would be silly for the man to go to the owner and say, you know, I found this treasure. It must be yours. So let's consider this situation for a moment because obviously the owner would say thank you and keep it, even if he didn't know a thing about it. First of all, the man who owned the field And this is, again, important to discuss because we don't want the the Lord Jesus teaching something unethical here, do we? First of all, the man who owned the field was obviously not the owner of this treasure because what would he have done before he sold the field to this man who found the treasure? He would have dug it up first and then sold the man the treasure. So he didn't know about the treasure, so obviously he wasn't the owner of the treasure. Uh, Secondly, rabbinic law taught this, quote, if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. That was rabbinic law. So this man is exactly finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That's exactly what it is here, and that was rabbinic law. So if a man found some money or valuables which were obviously lost, obviously lost. I mean, I can't find him in the man's house. Owner was most likely dead or unable to locate. Finder had every right to keep the treasure. And you see, this man was really testing the owner when he did go to him to buy the field. 
because if the owner said, no, I'm not going to sell you the field, I've got a treasure in there, and I'm, or I'll take the treasure and then I'll sell you the field, then the man who bought it, who found the treasure, would know. So he's really kind of testing to see. But the man didn't know anything about it, and rabbinic law would support him taking it. Third, the man in this parable was actually very honest. He was extremely honest, above and beyond what the vast majority of people would do. He did the right thing. He went and he sold everything so that he could purchase the field so that the treasure would rightfully be his. Now, what could he have done? He could have just taken the treasure and not told the man, and he would have had this, and it was a very valuable treasure. He didn't have to go and sell everything he had in order to do that which was right and buy the field so that the treasure would be rightfully his. Or he could have taken a part of the treasure and gone and sold it and used the money from part of the treasure to buy the field from the man. You see what I'm saying? But he sold everything he had. He didn't even use part of the treasure to buy the field. So he went beyond and above what the call of duty would be. Instead, he used what was already his to purchase the field. Now, again, we do not have the recorded interpretation of this parable, although the Lord did interpret it, as we said before, with the mustard seed parable. He did interpret it for his own disciples. I'm not sure they fully got it. They tell the Lord at the end that they got it, but I'm not sure they really did. But once again, uh, therefore, we have to rely upon the Holy Spirit and the rest of what we know from Scripture to help us interpret this parable of the hidden treasure. Now, the most common interpretation, and I do not want to come across as being dogmatic at all, so if I sound dogmatic about these four parables, please leave here understanding that I'm not. Um, This has been very difficult for me. I'm trying to do the best that I can here. But there are many, many godly Bible teachers that teach these other ways. All right, and so I'm going to be very upfront with you and say that on these two, I'm not really 100% sure. I had to come up with something to teach you, but I'm going to give you my interpretation. I'll also tell you what the other interpretation is, and you can go study and see what you come up with, but boy, it's confusing. It can really get... But the most common interpretation of this parable is that the man who found the treasure is the sinner who finds Jesus Christ, the the person, the sinner, who realizes the value of the kingdom. And this interpretation is based on the question, well, how does one appropriate the kingdom of God? You know, how, how does one get into the kingdom of God? And so they say this is Jesus explaining how one gets into the kingdom of God. However... Remember, I, did, I tend to disagree with that because of the fact that he's already speaking to men. He's not ta- talking to the multitude anymore. He's, just spe- he's speaking to his own disciples. He's already speaking to men who are in the kingdom. Anyway, this interpretation says that the one who found the treasure is the sinner who finds the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives up all that he has in order to gain possession of him and be saved. Now, this is looking at the parable from a human perspective. But I don't see the other parables really looking at the kingdom from the human perspective. I see them really seeing things as God sees them. You know, he sees himself as the sower or his son as the sower. He sees the heart types. 
He sees the counter-sowing of Satan. He sees the small beginning of the kingdom and how large it will get. But this parable, the interpretation of this that I'm giving to you that most people take, most commentators take, is really looking at the parable from a human perspective. It is seeing the man as representing a person who sees the desirability of the treasure, which is equated with Christ and his kingdom, and that person is willing to make an extreme sacrifice, you know, sell everything in order to buy the field so that he can then have the treasure and can enter into this kingdom in which Christ um, lies hidden. Now, the lesson taught by those who follow this line of interpretation is that those who hear Christ's message, the gospel message, and seek the kingdom should be willing to make every sacrifice necessary in order to enter into salvation and the kingdom which he offers. Now, I am not going to dogmatically say that that is wrong, but I do want to give you some of the reasons that that I tend not to go with that interpretation, even though some of my favorite Bible teachers do, okay? But um, you can draw your own conclusion, all right? And I don't know why the Lord didn't give us the interpretation. It sure would have been nice. But there must be a reason, and maybe, I got to thinking, maybe it's because there's a little truth in both of these. Could be. And it's just like the hidden treasure. Sometimes we just have to, he wants us to dig deep to, to really get to the treasure. So maybe that's what it's all about. Maybe that's why he didn't include the interpretation. I know he has a reason, but it sure did drive me crazy. All right, first of all, viewing the parable in the way I just mentioned suggests that people enter into the kingdom of heaven through their own sacrifice and by their own efforts. But we know from Scripture course that no man can purchase his salvation it's not by human efforts it's not by self you know self works that one is saved the new birth is what by grace through faith and faith alone and even the grace to have the faith is given to us by by God and the other way of interpreting it the first way I have given to you really makes it look like the man is purchasing his own salvation he goes out and sells all that he has so that he can buy the field and have the treasure. Now, secondly, it says that the man purchased the entire field, right? He went out and sold all he had so he could go back to the owner and buy the field, the whole field from the owner. He didn't just purchase the treasure. He purchased the entire field. Now, we were given a Lord's interpretation of the field back in Matthew 13, 38, and that was in the parable of the wheat and tares, and what did he say the field represented? The world. Remember, we talked about the fact that it's not the church. It's the world, although many people have interpreted the field to be the church, but it isn't. Jesus said the field is the world. Very clear. All right. So does this mean, this is what I was asking myself, does this mean that the sinner has to purchase the whole world in order to gain Christ, the treasure? Does he have to buy the whole world in order to gain the kingdom? Does it mean that, and, and I had a real problem with this hidden business too. Does it mean that once he has found Christ, the treasure, he does what? He buries him back in the ground. He, he hides him into the ground so that he can then go out, you know, be a living sacrifice, sell everything that he has so that he could purchase the field and gain back the treasure. 
I have a problem wondering why he would rehide Christ or the kingdom once he'd found him. Well, I can understand why Christ is hidden because not everybody can see him. You know, the kingdom is within and, and not everybody sees Christ. But why would he, once he found him, why would he rehide them? Because we're not to hide our light under a bushel. So I, I don't really, and, and these guys get into these long, 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 they, and they do these things so that they can explain it. And once you've read it, you say, oh, okay. But I always think about, you know, I'm just a dumb sheep. And if I couldn't get all, you know, if I couldn't do all this, it, it maybe isn't the primary interpretation. So anyway, I'm just sharing. I'm being open with you because I, I, I can't be dogmatic about this. But it makes me wonder, why would he purchase the whole world? Why would he rebury Christ once he found him and then purchase the whole world so that he might gain Christ? Anyway, um, thirdly, I had to ask myself the question, is it Jesus Christ who is lost and hidden in the world? Or is it the sinner? And is it the sinner who must find him? Or is it the other way around? And the scripture says there is none that seeketh after God. No, not one. It says instead that it was the Son of Man who came to seek and to save that which was lost in the world. I don't know. You know, to me, the sinner couldn't find anything because he's spiritually blind. It's Jesus who finds us. He wasn't lost in the world. We were. So that's just my thoughts on that interpretation. And I'm not going to say they're wrong 100%, but here's the other interpretation. And it involves looking at this parable not from the human perspective, but from the divine perspective. You know, what is God going to gain out of this mystery form of the kingdom? What's it all about anyway? Why have it? What is he going to gain? I mean, he's the sower. What is, he going, what, is, what is his purpose in this? And from, from the divine perspective, the man who found the treasure is just like all the main characters in the other parables. He's Jesus Christ. Who was the sower in the sower and the four soil types? Who was the sower? Jesus Christ. Who was the um, sower um, of, the, of the wheat? Jesus Christ. Who was the sower of the mustard seed? that grew into a great tree, Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I would say that the man who found the treasure represents or symbolizes the Lord Jesus. And in order to purchase this treasure, he gave up all that he had to purchase the entire world. The field is said to be the world. And doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. And doesn't it again tell us in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ Jesus? Doesn't the parable say that the purchaser sold all that he had in order to gain the world? What is the ultimate sacrifice that a person can give? If you're going to really give all that you can, all right, well, Jesus gave his life. He gave his life at the cross. He didn't have much, physically speaking, but he gave himself to purchase this special treasure. And, he said, and it says that he did it for the joy of gaining that treasure. And again, it says here that he hideth it, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. And this is, again, consistent with Scripture in Hebrews 12, too, that tells us that Jesus endured the giving of his all. He endured the pain and the suffering and the shame of the cross for what? For the joy 
that was set before him when he would purchase that field and gain that treasure. He did it knowing how great his joy would be when that particular treasure was his. Well, what about the hiding of this treasure for a while before he comes back to take rightful possession of it after he purchased the field, the world? Well, here's where the Old Testament scriptures are going to help us a little bit. Exodus 19.5 tells us um, that it is... It gives us a little clue as to what this specific treasure might be. It is not the whole world. Remember this. The treasure is not the whole world. The field is the whole world. But the treasure is something hidden in the world. Jesus gave all he had for the world so that he could gain something very valuable in the world. And where did he find it? in the field or in the land. Remember how many times we've talked about the fact that in the scripture, symbolically speaking, the land speaks of, or the earth speaks of Israel, like the beast in Revelation that comes up out of the land is the, the beast that comes up out of Israel, and the sea speaks of the Gentiles. The beast that comes out of the, the sea is going to represent the Antichrist who will be Gentile, not but the false prophet will be Jewish. All right, and this is repeated. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. All right, the treasure in this first parable is hidden in the land, in the field. All right. Um, the next parable of the of the pearl is hidden in the sea. I'm giving you some little clues here. All right. So Moses in Exodus speaking for God wrote to the people of Israel and he said now therefore if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then ye shall be a peculiar a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine who did God say would be his peculiar or his special treasure the people of Israel the nation of Israel Psalm 135.4 reinforces this by saying, For the Lord hath chosen Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. So the treasure, as I read it in the scripture, and remember the disciples were Jewish. The treasure is the nation of Israel. And that special nation was selected and it was placed in the middle, we could call it the belly button, of the land masses of this world to be a witness of God and to bring glory to him. But she failed. Israel failed. So she became a nation hidden in the world. She was actually uh, scattered to the four corners of the world after she rejected Jesus Christ. And even before that, she was hidden. She's been hidden twice, just like in this parable. Um, and when she was hidden, she brought absolutely no dividends to God. You know the parable of the hidden talents? The one who gets scolded by the Lord is the one who just buried it in the ground. He didn't, he didn't invest it, so he didn't bring any dividends for God. Israel did not invest what she had in, the, in his kingdom. She just was like a nation hidden in the ground, no investment. But Jesus saw the, the value of this treasure, and he gave all, up all that he had in order to purchase the world so that he could gain this, this, this nation, save this nation. Although the nation as a whole rejected Christ's purchase for her, 
Yet when he returns, which will be at the time of the consummation of this kingdom that we're talking about, this intermediate kingdom, this mystery kingdom, it will end when? When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. And when he returns at his second coming, Israel will finally accept him, acknowledge him. She will be returned to her former glory. He's purchased her, and she's reburied in the world right now. But when he comes back to claim what he's purchased, he's going to take her out, and she will be established in the kingdom of heaven, which she missed the first time. So from God's perspective, this mystery form of the kingdom, he's going to do two primary things. He is going to purchase and establish and complete his church and he's going to he has purchased and he will redeem Israel one is the bride one is the wife of God Israel a great peculiar treasure to him and the other is the bride of Christ and that's what we're going to look at in the second parable is the the other part of it the the parable of the uh, valuable pearl which represents the church so two things in this kingdom that, from God's perspective that he's going to accomplish. Right now he's focused on what? The church. But you see, he's not finished with Israel. Yes, she's buried right now. But he's purchased her and he's going to come back and bring her back up out of the, the earth at the end of this mystery form of the kingdom. That's the last thing he does. And she is then the center focus of the millennial kingdom. I hope you're following me. I see a lot of blank faces, but <laughs> this, is, this isn't easy stuff. This really isn't. It's time. Well, okay, let's see how many. I have a page and a half. If you, if you have to go, let me just get this on the tape. If you have to go, get, go ahead, and we won't, we won't look funny at you. But let me just get this on the tape. The parable, parable of great value. <laughs> That's a good term, isn't it? The parable, the parable of the valuable pearl. And for this, let's look at verses 45 and 46. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he has, had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right, we have a very similar account. This is the other pair of the parable of the um, hidden treasure. This is the second part of that pair. We have a very similar account to the parable of the hidden treasure, except here it's a merchant man who is seeking goodly pearls. Now, pearls in the ancient world were, were valued like diamonds are today. They were very valuable. They were beyond price, as the Jewish Talmud words, uh, words it. Except it's interesting that the Gentiles actually had a higher look outlook on pearls than the Jews. The Jews did not equate pearls with as much value as the Gentiles, which is interesting considering the church is primarily made up of Gentiles. Um, Egyptians actually worshipped the pearl, and the Romans thought so highly of it that, uh, that they also worshipped it, and, and Roman women would show their wealth by wearing you know, pearls everywhere on their person. It says that the Roman emperor Caligula's wife was, had actually wore a tremendous fortune in pearls in her hair, on her toes, and her ears, on her neck, on her fingers, everywhere she could, her wrists, forgot wrists, everywhere she could possibly put pearls, she put pearls. 
Cleopatra is said to have had two very expensive pearls that were equal to $2 million, which back then was like probably a billion or billions. And she actually took one of those expensive pearls off of her ear and dissolved it in vinegar and drank it to show off to Mark Anthony you know, how rich she was. That's what they would do if they wanted to show off how wealthy they were. They would take one of these real pearls and dissolve it in vinegar and then drink it and say, look how rich I am. I can drink pearls. So wearing pearls was a way in which uh, primarily Gentile women would flaunt their wealth. They were more valuable than they are today, definitely. Pearl oysters live where? At the bottom, they live at a depth of 48 to 120 feet down in the ocean. And back then, of course, they didn't have any sophisticated way to mine for pearls. And so men would actually, young men would risk their lives in order to dive that deep without any, you know, the right equipment. Um, they'd hold their breath, and a lot of them were, would die. Or they'd actually tie stones to their legs. They'd put some kind of bopper what do you call them, to keep them floaters on their arms but stones to their feet so that they could go that deep and hold their breath. And a lot of them ruined their health doing that and others, you know, I guess bubbles can get into your lungs and burst or whatever. So a lot of them, but if they found a pearl, you know, they'd have it made. Then they could take it to the marketplace and sell it to a merchant such as this merchant man in this parable who was looking for a goodly pearl. And he found one. And when he found one of such great value, he literally, just like the other parable, he sold all that he had so that he could purchase this great pearl for himself. Now, again, some, not many, but some, not as many as the other parable, but some have interpreted this parable in the same way they interpreted the parable of the hidden treasure, which to me is kind of ironic. They, they interpret the parable of the hidden treasure as the sinner seeking Christ, but here's the other pair, and they interpret this, many of them, the way I do as um, Christ purchasing the church. But still, some do say that the merchant man, again, is a sinner, and the pearl is Jesus Christ. And when the sinner finds Christ, he sells all that he has to purchase him and enter into his eternal kingdom. However, I have the same argument that no sinner is able to purchase his salvation no matter how much he gives, you know, gives up. And that it is not the sinner who finds Christ, but Christ who finds the sinner. So, I see this parable, as I did with the other parable, as the main character, the merchant, being the Lord Jesus. He's the one who finds the pearl of great value. So what is the pearl? Well, where is the pearl found? Not in the field, but in the sea. And what does the sea symbolize in the scripture? The Gentile nations, right. I say the pearl represents the church, and many do agree with me on this. Many of the commentators do agree that this is the church. Acts 15:14 says, God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. We know, of course, that the church consists of both Jews and Gentiles, but by far the majority of the church consists of Gentiles. There's a remnant of Jews, but mostly Gentiles. Also, a distinct quality about a pearl is its unity. It cannot be cut or it loses its value which is not true for other jewels, such as topaz or diamonds or emeralds or other. You know, if a pearl is cut, you've just destroyed it. So, so a distinct quality about it is its unity. Ephesians 4, 4 6 to 6 says there's one body and one spirit, 
even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. That is speaking of what? Unity. Unity. Also, like a pearl, the church is the result and product of suffering. You know, a pearl is formed when something foreign, an irritation, like a grain of sand, gets inside the shell of the oyster. And then it irritates the oyster. And so in order to make this irritation less abrasive, the oyster begins this long, slow process of covering the irritation with a milky substance called mother of pearl. Thin sheets of this mother of pearl are layered one upon another, you know, until the irritation after several years isn't quite so irritating. And the, the particle is completely covered and a lustrous pearl has been formed. Also, um, a, a pearl, unlike the other gems of this world, comes from a living organism, doesn't it? The oyster is a living organism. The church is a living organism, which came from the, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ initially. And then, like a pearl, the church is the product of suffering itself. Not only did Christ suffer so that the church could be formed, but look at how many individual members of the church, starting with the apostles, have suffered and even been martyred for their faith so that the church could continue to grow just like a pearl, layer upon layer, generation upon generation. No one can really see the making of a pearl, can they? Because it's not only is it down at the bottom of the sea, but it's inside the oyster shell. So you really cannot see the making of the pearl. Just as no one but God himself can really see the development and growth of his church even today. You know, we don't know the size of the church And really, the church, you know, to the world is kind of ugly. You know, it's pretty ugly to be surrounded by... Have you ever seen an oyster? Pretty ugly. And that flesh is covering that beautiful pearl, just like, you know, today. Our ugly flesh is covering the real pearl within us. But one, you know, when when the one who finds it takes it out and presents it in all its beauty, the whole world is going to see the church arrayed in fine linen, clean, and what color? White just like a pearl. So what is it that God will gain during this new mystery form of the kingdom? He's going to gain a hidden treasure, the nation of Israel, finally, at long last, when he returns to take possession of her at the end of this mystery age. And he will gain a pearl of great value, the church, made up primarily of Gentile believers. Both these things were so valuable in his sight that he gave up all in order to purchase them. He gave his very life. So, nothing, absolutely nothing, not hard pavement type of soil, not stony ground type of soil, not weed thorn-infested soil, not Satan and all his sneaky, evil, jealous over-sowing of this world with tares will prevent God's kingdom program for this age from completing from completion, just as nothing but nothing will stop him from completing you until that day that you are glorified into his image. So take that home and sleep on it, all right? (laughs) Let's move on now to the parable of the final net, and that's in verses 47 to 50. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This seventh parable illustrates the separation and the judgment which is going to occur at the end, at the consummation of this mystery form of the kingdom. The illustration here, whoops, that Jesus uses to teach God's judgment on unbelievers was that of fishing with a method known as a dragnet, dragnet fishing. This was a method of fishing that would be very, very familiar to those that were now listening to Jesus because that was his disciples, and many, we know, many of his disciples were what? Fishermen, right. Using a dragnet took a team of fishermen working together because the net itself, the dragnet that they used, sometimes could cover an area as much as half a square mile. So it took a team of fishermen. The net was pulled into a large circle formation around a school of fish between boats that would be stationed out in the water. The net allowed nothing to escape. So all kinds of fish and all kinds of sea creatures and various types of debris would be gathered up in the, in the net when it was pulled in. And it would take a long time after the net was dragged to the shore for the men to go through everything that had come in and that was caught in the net. What they would do is they would go through and they would take out all the good fish and they would put them into large vessels. Some vessels would contain water because they would want to keep the fish alive if they had to take them to a market that was some distance away. Other fish, if they were just going to a local market, would be put into containers without water and sold at the marketplace. But they would take out all the useless bad fish and throw them away, just throw them away. And all the debris and all the seaweed and shells and things like that would just be thrown away. Now, Jesus, wanting to give a strong warning about coming judgment for disbelief, gave the interpretation, I'm so glad to say, he did give the interpretation for this last parable on the mystery kingdom. He began by stating in verse 49 that the separation of the good fish from the bad fish represents the judgment of God, which will take place at the end of this mystery age of the kingdom. Now, you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares spoke about this very same time of judgment, which was called the time of harvest, when the wheat would be safely barned and the tares would be what? Burned. Barn the wheat and burn the weeds. And the tares, the barn, would, the barn symbolized heaven and the burning symbolized hell. Now he presents the same exact truth here. He says that the angels, in verse 49, who we saw before as God's reapers, will come forth as God's agents to do this judging. Remember, we learned it's not for man to do it. It's for the angels. 
to separate the wicked bad fish from the righteous good fish. Now, there's one commentator I just had to quote from because I thought he worded this so beautifully, John MacArthur. He says, The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the sea of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny. Believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation. Men move about within that net as if they were forever free. It may touch them from time to time as it were startling them. You know, a fish might accidentally bump against the net and be startled. But they quickly swim away thinking they have escaped not realizing they are completely and inescapably encompassed in God's sovereign plan. The invisible web of God's judgment encroaches on every human being just as that dragnet encroaches upon the fish. Most men do not perceive the kingdom. And that's true. And they do not see God working in the world. They may be briefly moved by the grace of the gospel or threatened by or frightened by the threat of judgment, but they soon return to their old ways of thinking and living, oblivious to the things of eternity. But when man's day is over and Christ returns to set up his glorious kingdom, then judgment will come. End of quote. Some have wondered why Jesus would repeat almost word for word the separation of the wicked from the righteous, which he'd already explained for us back in the parable of the wheat and the tares in verses 39 to 42. And I think that the reason is because he wanted to emphasize to his disciples how serious it was for them to repeatedly warn people about spending eternity in pain and suffering when they didn't have to. He himself, we know, warned men over and over and over again about the agonies of hell. He pleaded with men to come to him for his free gift of salvation that he could offer to them. He spoke more about hell than he ever did about heaven because he takes no death in, uh, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And it is not his desire that any man should perish. He doesn't want men to go to hell. He didn't prepare hell for men. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. He cried, remember, over his beloved Jerusalem when they would not accept the salvation that he offered to them and the kingdom that he could give to them. This parable, then, which is the last one directly concerning the mystery form of the kingdom, reveals that it will end in a time of judgment in which the wicked are prevented from going into the literal 1,000-year messianic kingdom of Christ on earth, which will then issue into the eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what is the one characteristic that determines the good fish from the bad fish or the wheat from the weed? Or this is the same story, again, if you want to read about it, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, the sheep from the goats. You see how the Lord always took things that were very common to people that they could identify with? What's the one distinguishing characteristic that tells you what is a wheat, what is a tear, what is a good fish, what's a bad fish, what's a sheep, and what's a goat? 
It is what we spent all last year talking about. Yes, righteousness. Righteousness is the prerequisite for entrance into the mystery form or any other form of the kingdom of heaven. Is righteousness something that man can earn on his own? No. Is, is it something that man can purchase on his own? No. All man's works of righteousness, as we said, are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6, something like that. The wealthiest man who ever lived, if he gave everything he owned, could not even begin to pay for even one sin. There is only one way that we can obtain the righteousness necessary to gain access to God and to his eternal kingdom, and that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ's death on our behalf for our sins. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we had a debt we couldn't pay. When we trust in his death for our payment of our own personal sins and submit to him as our Savior and Lord, then the Bible says that we are positionally righteous in the sight of God. It says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might be made, what? The righteousness of God. And that is how you can get into the kingdom of God, by having Christ's righteousness given to you, imputed to you through your faith in what he purchased for you, your salvation. All right, very quickly. Okay, let's look at that parable of the householder, verses 51 and 52. This is the eighth parable, but this does not have to do with the mystery kingdom. Jesus saith unto them, now he's talking to his disciples, he says, Have ye understood all these things? And what do they say? Oh, yes, Lord, yes. Then he said unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Now that is one parable that really mystified me until I started looking at it. After Jesus had given his series of parables on this intermediate form of the kingdom, the mystery parables discourse, then he asked his disciples if they had understood them. And they said, yes, Lord, we understood. At that time, this is all before the cross and before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the disciples understood all that they were able to understand at that time. And the Lord appreciated that. So that's why he went on to give them this next parable. He teaches them that with understanding comes responsibility. And this is the primary point that the Lord is trying to teach in this last parable, the parable of the householder. With understanding comes responsibility. He told his men that every scribe who learns about the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household. A scribe, you know, was uh, one who is learned in the scriptures, who's studied the scriptures and who interprets them for the people. Jesus was saying that these 12 men, his disciples, under his instructions, instruction, were becoming as learned scribes, for they were disciples, they were learners of the kingdom of heaven. 
You know, we all oftentimes think of scribes negatively because they're always, in the New Testament, they're always grouped together with the Pharisees. And they're always hypocritical and they're always doing bad things. But the scribes actually began as a noble group under the leadership of Ezra. Their primary purpose back then was to preserve God's law and to study it all their lifetime and to apply the law to the people's lives for them, to help them apply it so that they could understand it. However, over the years, as happens with many noble causes, uh, their noble cause turned into ritualistic routine. Traditions and man-made interpretations gradually replaced the love that they had in their hearts for God's word, God's word, and they became preoccupied with the do's and the don'ts of their man-made system of religion, forgetting the personal cleansing relationship that they could have with a personal loving God. So instead of sharing the living and transforming truths with the people from God's word, what they started to do was add numerous heavy burdens onto the people with all these rules and regulations. And those we know could not free anybody from their burden of sin and guilt. But a true godly scribe was one who was concerned about God and about God's righteousness, who sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and was concerned about how to teach the people to enter into the kingdom of God. And under the Lord's teaching, his disciples were becoming, as he said, true scribes because they were now learning about God's kingdom. Therefore, in their responsibility to others, they were like the head of a household. The head of a household is responsible to others that are in his family. He is responsible for their welfare, as well as being responsible for all of his servants and their families and their welfare. It was his duty to see that they had enough food to eat, enough clothes to wear, shelter over their heads, etc., and he would keep all the household supplies in a storehouse or a treasure, it says in verse 52, from which he would dispense or bring forth as needed to those under his care. Now, the Greek word for bring forth carries with it the idea of distributing widely. In other words, he was to be very generous in giving from his storehouse. But though he was to be very generous, he was also to be a good steward and show wisdom by saving old supplies which could be reused. In other words, when his children outgrew their clothes, he put the clothes into the storehouse for maybe the next generation that would come along. If food didn't perish and it wasn't eaten, he'd put it into the storehouse so he could use that food again. If pots and pans got old, he'd save them for when his children got married and he could give them to them and they could use them until they could afford their own. So he was a good steward. He was generous, but he was a good steward, and he didn't throw out the old. He saved the old and gave new, too. Now, how does all this apply to the disciples? Well, these men were the ones that Christ was going to entrust with the continued revelation of his word, with the founding of his church, with the truth that he'd been revealing about this new kingdom age, and with the sowing of the gospel message to the entire world. They were to be as householders, except their responsibility was to the entire world. Can you imagine? Twelve men, one of them a tear. Eleven men, and their responsibility as householders 
was to the entire world. Their storehouses were being filled up with old truths that they had learned from the Lord's previous teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, and all the old truths that they already knew from the Old Testament. And now, with new truths, all these new truths that they were being taught about this new age of the kingdom. So the Lord's charge to his disciples was to generously bring forth, to dispense, sow out, the importance of both the old and the new truths to those over whom they were responsible. In the same way that Christ, who is the chief householder, shared his wealth of knowledge with them of both the old and the new truths, they were now being charged to go forth and share all that they were learning with the whole world. And it was a tremendous charge, wasn't it? And they were just but a small, small group of men. The odds against them looked impossible. But you and I are sitting here in this structure this morning because greater is he who gave them this command than he who is in the world. That tiny little mustard seed of a group of men, just like leaven, began a process which would end in the positive influence of the kingdom of God upon the whole entire world when Jesus Christ will return and establish the messianic kingdom of heaven here upon earth. Thank you, Father, for the supreme sacrifice that Jesus made to purchase those of us who are now members of his church because of our faith in him. May we truly, Lord, be challenged and be willing to go forth from here today with a new, bolder determination to fulfill our householder responsibilities to those in our own circles by telling them that there is a Savior who loves them enough to have shed his blood in order to keep them from spending an eternity in darkness and pain. May we, Lord, please you this week by being obedient and submissive to your will. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.